2: Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice, Buck Sexton.
4: Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Oh, my, what a day. Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide for the Republicans in the Senate when it comes to health care. Oof, rough stuff for uh, Mitch McConnell. So... Let's just let's just roll up the sleeves, my friends, and get right into it because no matter what, it's not going to smell good. This is not not where we should be with the GOP right now. Year after year, I remember I was doing radio shows and going on TV and talking about how, you know, the the conservatives and the right and the the Republicans are going to get rid of Obamacare because they're telling us day in and day out. And I took them at their word. Uh, what else are you going to do? But I guess we shouldn't have. Although we'll see. It this is not this is not yet over. It still could be the case that the Republican Senate, Republican uh led Senate is able to repeal Obamacare. We we it could happen. They needed to fall flat on their face first. There had to be a big failure as I like to say a sunburned belly flop in the shallow end of the pool. That is what the Senate GOP has been up to. Um, but he, let's, let's just walk through this together, if, if, you, uh, if you don't mind. Let's get into this. Here's, here's what Mitch McConnell had to say.
5: I regret that the effort to repeal and immediately replace the failures of Obamacare will not be successful. Powered. That doesn't mean no, we but, should give up. Doesn't mean we it. will now try a different way different. to bring the American people relief from Obamacare. I think we owe them at least that much. We're In the coming days, the Senate will take up and vote on a repeal of Obamacare combined with a stable two-year transition period as we work toward patient-centered health care. A majority of the Senate voted to pass the same repeal legislation back in 2015. President Obama vetoed it then. President Trump will
4: sign it now. Time to put your money where your mouth is, GOP Senate, or your vote where your mouth has been. Uh, that's what Mitch McConnell is saying here because he's got no choice. His whole deal-making behind closed doors, just leave it, leave it in McConnell's hands, it'll get done. That just fell apart today, and it fell apart because you had three Senate uh, GOP defections. Uh, You had uh, Senator uh, Shelley Capito, Lisa Murkowski, and uh, Susan Collins. So they all decided that they were just not on board for this. And this is after, it should be noted, there were efforts made in the Senate specifically to uh, sweeten the deal for these three ladies of the Senate and their states, their constituencies. They tried to get them on board, and it just did not work. You had Senator Capito put out the following statement. As I have said before, I did not come to Washington to hurt people. For months, I have expressed reservations about the direction of the bill to repeal and replace Obamacare. I have serious concerns about how we continue to provide affordable care to those who have benefited from West Virginia's decision to expand Medicaid especially in light of the growing opioid crisis. All of the Senate health care discussion drafts have failed to address these concerns adequately. My position on this issue is driven by its impact on West Virginians. With that in mind, I cannot vote to repeal Obamacare without a replacement plan that addresses my concerns and the needs of West Virginians, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. You see, this is what was going to be the problem all along. States that took the Medicaid expansion, those states have been getting money from the federal government. They've been getting free health care for people living in those states. Now, when you begin to change that around, or when you say that you're going to reverse that expansion, even if it's two a two year horizon and you're going to replace it with something else, that makes politicians get a little worried. They're they're a little nervous. They want to get reelected. They like this whole position they've got on the Senate, right? There's only a hundred of them. It's kind of a cool gig, cool job to have. They want to be in the Senate. And so here we are. After all the talk about repeal and replace, there are some who just don't want to do it. They would much prefer that the federal government pay uh, the tab for health care for some of their low earn, lower-earning residents. Uh, It's low-income residents who qualify for Medicaid under the expansion. Remember, that's just health care welfare. That's what Medicaid is. doesn't mean that we shouldn't be helping people when we can, but remember, what the Senate bill was doing was changing Medicaid over a period of time so that it would be left up more to the states how they spent the money. It would be a more efficient program. There'd be more accountability. There'd be more, uh, at least the option of, greater decision-making and creativity at a more local level so that it's a an increasingly effective program. But people don't want that. They just want free stuff. People want free stuff. And there are some senators who are unwilling to look their fellow Americans in the eye or look their the people from their home states in the eye and say, sorry, uh, the health, the overall health care system of the country is more important than the short-term health care needs of some of my constituency Keeping in mind that those needs would be met by other aspects of the Republican plan that was supposed to go into place. But they're not even willing to take that risk. It's about how it looks. People in the Senate don't want to lose their jobs. You'd think that health care is more important, right? This is, this is life and death for people, right? Whether or not they have access to timely care, effective care, this does matter. Health care affects all of us. I care about it. You care about it. This matters. And yet, here we are, staring us right in the face. Republicans who won't do what what they were all saying in order to get reelected, they were going to do. Now, uh, the president' his positions on this. Look, I-, I think you have to say this is a sen- this is a Senate issue. This is a congressional issue. Um, but you got President Trump. On this one in a whole bunch of different different places over the last 24 hours. So he's he's moving around with this. He says uh, this was earlier today, as I've always said, let Obamacare fail and then come together and do a great health care plan. Stay tuned. Okay, Um, But he also said the Senate must go to a 51 vote majority instead of current 60 votes. Even parts of full repeal need 60. Eight Democrats control the Senate. Crazy. That was uh, also earlier today, and you know. So he's been taking a few different a few different positions on this. Um, It's not entirely clear where the president comes down on the issue, and he spoke about it. So let's get what the president had to say.
3: Well, they were not disloyal, they had their own reasons. I was very surprised when the two folks came out last night because we thought they were in fairly good shape, but uh, they did. And, you know, everybody has their own reason. But if you really think about it, you look at it, and we have 52 people. We had no Democrat support, which is really, you know, something that should be said. We should have had Democrats voted. This is a great plan for a lot of people. So, the way I look at it is in 18, we're going to have to get some more people elected. We have to go out and we have to get more people elected than a Republican. It would be nice to have Democrat support, but really they're obstructionists. Uh, they have no ideas, they have no thought process. All they want to do is obstruct government and obstruct, period.
4: Later, later on, he did tweet that the Senate should go to a 51-vote majority instead of the current 60. I, I'm actually okay with that. I say go for it. But I know that those who revere the 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 cooling, temperate nature of the Senate would, uh, would maybe uh, disapprove of my position on that. But I, I think that they've just got to do some things. They've got a majority. I mean, if now you need a supermajority in order to do anything on health care, we've got a problem. Although that's not true. And we'll be joined by my friend Sean Davis to address that specific issue. And Sean— is a parliament a Senate parliamentarian wonk, so he can really walk us through what they're saying about this and whether it's accurate or not. Um, but so the president's had a bunch of different positions on this. I think he's just trying to he, he's trying to sell whatever the Republicans in the Senate get done, right? He, he's on the one hand pushing, but he's also selling, and so that's why you've got him in a few different places the last twenty four hours on this. He's he's also said that we're just going to let this whole thing collapse now. Uh, that's another possibility
3: let Obamacare fail it'll be a lot easier and I think we're probably in that position where we'll just let Obamacare fail Uh, we're not gonna own it I'm not gonna own it I can tell you the Republicans are not gonna own it we will let Obamacare fail and then the Democrats are gonna come to us and they're gonna say how do we fix it how do we fix it or how do we come up with a new plan
4: I don't think that's really I don't think that's really an option I got to tell you, I don't think letting letting it fail and uh, forcing people to go through the, the difficulties of not having insurance when, remember, we elected Republicans not so that we could sit around and suffer more. We elected Republicans to fix the suffering, to make the problems go away, to solve issues, not to just stand there and say, see, we told you there's a lot of issues. So I don't see letting it fail as as a really as a viable option, um, but we're going to have to see. We're going to have to see where all this goes. I mean, e- even Vice President Pence seemed like he was a little agitated by the whole situation today.
0: President Trump and I fully support the majority leader's decision to move forward with a bill that just repeals Obamacare. Congress needs to do their job, and Congress needs to do their job now.
4: Yeah, I think so. Full repeal of Obamacare. They're going to go forward with it. They say now we'll see. Uh, now we'll see if they can get that done, right? So l- let's just by by way of uh, of review here for a moment. So there was this bill in the Senate that we've that was mostly done behind closed that was done behind closed doors. Different from the House bill that Paul Ryan just went. Or we'll get to Paul Ryan in a moment here. Uh, different from the bill that Paul Ryan put through. Senate bill is supposed to be. Uh, I don't know. It's supposed to be a, a little bit. Um, more attuned to some of the political realities, I guess, than maybe the House bill. I I don't know how you'd want to categorize the differences. There are some differences, but on the overall substance, a lot of similarities. The Senate's got this bill, and they don't have the votes for it. So that's not going to work. You know, Mike Lee says, look, I'm not doing this. I'm not keeping the architecture of Obamacare in place. And now you've got some moderate Republicans— Always a problem, by the way. But You, know, you notice how, how many moderate Democrats broke ranks on, on the passage of Obamacare? Just, just by way of, yeah, none. Why is that? Maybe it's time to start looking at that as part of the problem here. You'll notice that Democrats, when there is a, a movement afoot, when there is political momentum to capitalize on, when the party is moving in a direction, man, they go in lockstep. They are a well-oiled machine at the utilization of power. They are a well-oiled machine when it comes to uh, implementing the will of the Democrat Party through the machinery of the state. And they, they don't deal with heretics. They don't, they don't have people breaking party ranks over issues like Obamacare. They knew that this was just going to be all in for them. Meanwhile, the Republicans were, oh, maybe yes, maybe no, who knows? Some, It's not conservative enough for some. It's not uh, moderate enough or real, really big spending enough for others. I mean, keep in mind, they added in this insurance bailout uh, part of this. They were trying to buy off in the Senate. Republican senators were trying to buy off the senators who were worried about how this was going to look mean and not generous enough. And that didn't even work. It did not work. Um, and now here we are with who knows, who knows what's going to happen. <laughs> no, Nobody really knows what's going to happen at this point. Are they going to push through to a full, a full repeal and just do it? They promised they would do it. They've been saying they would do it. They ran on doing it. Borrow from the Nike slogan here for a second. Just do it. Why not? Why not? It, it, it's really hard to take. The Republican Party seriously at this point. It's really hard to take our elected representatives seriously in the GOP if they can have as their central rallying cry, we will do the following. And then when when it is finally time, they just don't. They just don't. What are we to take away from this? What are the American people supposed to think? That we're just, we're being fooled? That we're chumps? We've been swindled? No. I think you make a promise you keep your promise. And for the GOP, that means repeal of Obamacare. Not just making it better, it means repeal. Um, we're going to have more on this. Also, the talk about the discussion single payer. Oh, uh, Trump has certified this stage of the Iran deal. I want to get into that with you, uh, as well as maybe some updates on Russia collusion investigation if we have those, if we have time for those. Uh, we've got a, a lot of show, my friends. You know who's really excited about this, of course? The Democrats. They see this disarray within the GOP, and, and they are just high-fiving each other. And Chuck Schumer, he's got, uh, he's got plenty to say
3: about this. At the very beginning of this Congress, President Trump and Leader McConnell said, don't come knocking at our door on health care. We don't need you. Now that their one-party effort has largely failed, we hope. They will change their tune. Make no mistake about it. Passing repeal without a replacement would be a disaster. Our health care system would implode. Millions would lose coverage. Coverage for millions more would be diminished.
4: Let's just understand that a lot of people that lost coverage would be happy that they lost coverage because they don't like the coverage that they're forced to buy under Obamacare. Regulations. A lot of other people who would lose coverage would be uh, in a situation where they don't have Medicaid. But as we know, Medicaid health outcomes are no better than non-Medicaid health outcomes in the same uh, socioeconomic population, i.e., another way of saying this is if you got Medicaid or not, you're not likely, you know, if you have Medicaid, you're not likely to be healthier than somebody who's living next door to you who's making the same amount of money who doesn't have Medicaid. And your life outcomes, your your general health outcomes, are supposed to be about the same. So, Medicaid is a not a an effective healthcare program. Um, so that's of course worth looking at. How do we make it more effective? So if we're if we're going to give people free healthcare. We should make it pretty. We should at least make it work, right? Um, but this is now where the Democrats are. They're able to uh, gloat over this failure. And look, if I were a Democrat, I'd be doing the same thing. Obamacare got through. It was never in doubt. They were going to make it happen one way or another. They were going to push that thing through, and they did. And here we are now with the Republicans in control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, and we're having all these problems. And you know, the discussion, the debate, is going to quickly turn to one about single-payer, I think. Keep that in mind, right? Because if Republicans concede— that this is not about that they can't have a free market in health care, that they can't repeal Obamacare. Well, th- then the left is going to see this as an opening to say, yeah, you see, th- the government should be in charge of more of this. You're already hearing some of this.
6: I think really what we need and what most countries have is a simple single-payer system, and that has seemed politically unfeasible, but I think that what's interesting is that you're actually seeing more and more democrats say this should be our baseline. I mean, it's cheaper, the outcomes are better, um, you know, it, it's really it's what the rest of the world is using and is where we need to be.
4: First of all, the rest of the world is not doing that. Okay, so let's let's start there. You know, good, good luck uh, finding your finding free health care in uh, you know, in, the, in, in India, uh, that, that will take care of your heart condition, right? I mean, the rest of the world is not just doing this. But anyway, um, the, uh, the single-payer line, though, is going to get louder and louder uh, because Republicans have used so much of their time to push for— I mean, I mean you know, elected officials in the Senate and the House have used, have burned so much of their credibility with their constituencies, I mean, if Obamacare is not that bad, if they can keep a lot of it in place, then what were we hearing about all that time? What was so terrible about—let's ask the question. What was so terrible about what President Obama was pushing if they don't need to repeal it? You know, you start to get into a pretty uncomfortable place here with what the GOP has been saying to those who vote Republican, who are registered, who are conservatives, who care about this issue— uh they they seem very dishonest right now and that is it is a fatal dishonesty for the party and they need to fix this right
2: away the freedom hut rocks online too you can hang out with team buck anytime plus get buck's latest news and analysis go to bucksexton.com that's bucksexton.com not the buck is back Okay, everybody, a lot of news today, lots of stuff
4: happening down on Capitol Hill. And I wanted someone to uh, weigh in here who can speak to us, not just about the the politics of what's happening, but about the political machinery at play here. Like, for example, who's telling the truth about what can be passed and what can't and reconciliation and all that to help us work through that mess. We got our buddy Sean Davis on the line. He is co-founder of The Federalist. Go to the federalist.com for his latest. Mr. Davis, good to have you back.
7: Good to be here. Thank you for having me.
4: Uh, before I get into the specifics about reconciliation, and you're, you're a guy who you worked down. Just tell everybody, you worked down in Congress uh, for a while, if I recall.
7: Right. I worked for Senator Tom Coburn from Oklahoma and helped him do um, a whole lot of parliamentary procedure and chicanery and fun stuff like that using Senate rules.
4: All right. So this is a guy who really understands the Senate rules. Uh, We one of the things that we've been told for many months now is that, oh, well, or at least for weeks on the Senate side. But before that, you know, Republicans in the House were saying it, too, is, well, we can't do a full repeal of Obamacare because reconciliation. But then you get people like Ted Cruz and others coming out saying, well, actually, we could. Well, this should be a yes or no issue, Sean. Which is it? Can they repeal if they want to? We'll get into that in a second. But could they theoretically, technically repeal Obamacare in its entirety?
7: Uh, Absolutely. They can do it by a reconciliation. They can do it by majority vote. And the general way to think about the Senate is that with the exception of treaties, which according to the Constitution can only be ratified by at least two-thirds of the Senate, Every single thing that the Senate does can be done by majority vote, everything, at any time. Um, so when it comes to reconciliation, which is a, 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 an additional legal process that's used to help expedite uh, budget procedures, because remember this was passed in the heyday of the filibuster. They wanted to find a way to fast-track the budget. They set up reconciliation, but the reconciliation has some rules that you can't do this, and you can't do that unless you get this waived or that waived. But what it comes down to is that because of its nature, the Senate can do whatever it wants, including repealing Obamacare via reconciliation by majority vote, period. There, There is no disputing it, and nobody who actually understands Senate procedure will dispute that the Senate has the absolute authority to do that.
4: Sean, are because are there are senators, right, who have been telling their constituents, have been going on TV saying, sorry, we need a supermajority, we can't actually repeal Obamacare. Are, are they just of a different opinion, Sean, or are they lying?
7: Uh, I think they're probably mistaken. So the, the real issue here is what's called the Bird Rule, kind of named after Robert Byrd. And what that rule says is that when it comes to budget reconciliation, that provisions that only have an, an incidental budget effect, uh, where they're not primarily budget-related, uh, those can't be used in reconciliation, and they can be tossed out uh, with a point of order. Um, so they – they go and talk to the parliamentarian in the Senate, and the parliamentarian will say it's her opinion, her advisory opinion, that yes, this or that is incidental, and so therefore I would say it's a budget rule point of order. It violates the bird rule, and, and then the members walk out and they go, oh, okay, well, the parliamentarian says that. That must be it. So I don't, I, most of them I don't think are lying. I think they're just mistaken. Um, the fact of the matter is that for all we hear about what the parliamentarian says or does or whatever – The parliamentarian has no official authority in the Senate, has no power. Um, The parliamentarian's job is to advise the Senate on procedure. When it comes to actually ruling on matters and ruling on whether something does or doesn't violate this provision, that authority lies entirely with the presiding officer, the the president pro temp of the Senate, maybe even the vice president if he chooses to go and, and serve as the president of the Senate, That authority resides in the chair and the chair alone. And if the chair decides, you know what, this is actually kosher, it comports with the rules, under reconciliation, it would take 60 votes to overturn that. So if they had a one-sentence repeal of Obamacare, uh, the Affordable Care Act is hereby repealed. Uh, A Democrat would probably raise a point of order. The vice president would say it's not in order. Democrats would try to appeal. They would fail because they wouldn't have 60 votes. And that bill would be passed under reconciliation with a majority of votes. It's that simple.
4: So they can do it. But now we get to, perhaps in some ways, just as pressing a question, Sean, do you think they want to do it? Do Republicans actually no. want to repeal this? And, and where do you think this is heading now with Mitch McConnell?
7: No, they don't. And that's actually one reason why Senate GOP leadership was pushing this message so hard that, oh, you know, we'd love to repeal it, root and branch, a reconciliation, but we, you know, we just can't shrug. That's why they were pushing that to to Paul Ryan, trying to get him to do this grand bargain in the House, which exploded in his face. Uh, GOP leadership uh, has never wanted to do a full repeal, ever. They didn't even want to repeal it when it was still being passed. I mean, they kind of sat on their hands thinking, oh, the court will take care of this for us. Let's just let the Democrats pass it, and then we'll smack them, and then politically we'll win. The, the fact of the matter is that despite all their votes and all their promises, uh Senate Republicans don't actually want to repeal it. And when they were telling you, oh, we need the Senate, no, we need the White House, it's then that they were not being truthful. And the truth of the matter is they just don't want to. It's an issue of won't, not can't.
4: We're speaking to Sean Davis, co-founder of The Federalist. Read his latest pieces up on The Federalist dot com. Sean, why don't the, the people who don't want to have been made well? The, the people who don't want to at all in the Senate have been made clear because they've they've stood up and said, "Yeah, I need more." Well, wh- what do they want? What are their problems?
7: That's a good question. Uh, one of my colleagues has made the point that in a number of these states, where uh, Ohio, for example, where Kasich has just become the biggest Obamacare opponent ever. Um, The thing you have to do is follow the money, and it turns out that because of the Medicaid expansion – and remember, Obamacare was two things. It was a bunch of mandates and regs uh, governing the private insurance market, and it was the Medicaid expansion. Well, it turns out a lot of hospitals have made a lot of money on the Medicaid expansion. Now, the the people who are in Medicaid, they're not getting any better care than they had before. They're they're still being treated very poorly, not getting adequate health care. Um, but the hospitals are making a mint on it, and so in a number of these states where you have kind of uh, weak need Republicans who are pretending they wanted to repeal, but when it came down to it, didn't really want to, uh, I think a large part of it is that they're being pushed around by hospital lobbies in their states who kind of enjoy the big fat revenue stream they're getting from Obamacare's Medicaid expansion.
4: Sean, uh, what do you think should happen here?
7: I think Republicans should do what they promised. They should do what they said, and they should repeal Obamacare and start over. I just want them to keep their word. That, that's all I want is for them to do exactly what they've been promising to do for the last eight years.
4: No question in your mind that if they don't do that, it is a choice that is being made by senators. Their hands are not tied.
7: Absolutely. Uh, this business that, oh, if only the Senate rules let them do what they would is absolute nonsense. It's a fig leaf that they're using basically to hide their own iniquity on the matter.
4: All right. Well, do, you have, do you have a prediction you want to offer up, Sean, as to what's going to happen here?
7: Oh, I don't have the slightest clue. I, I'm sure they're going to do something crappy and, and uh, <laughs> not within the, the best interest of everyone in America. Sean's, Sean's putting
4: his that. cash on crappy, everybody, just just so you know. <laughs> putting all my money on Brown there. All right. Sean Davis, everybody, co-founder of The Federalist, his latest on TheFederalist.com. Sean, thanks for making the time, man. Great to have you. Thanks, Buck. Team, what do you think about all this 844 buck 844 2825 Is full repeal what needs to be done? Because that's what was promised. Seems like a pretty straightforward proposition to me, but GOP could pay a price in the midterms. People might get very unhappy if uh, they feel like they're having the rug pulled out from them when it comes to health care and... I'm sure there's going to be some noise here and there from different parts of the industry, insurance, hospitals, doctors, lobbies, you know, all kinds of folks. So this is going to get it's definitely going to get messy. Um, So what are your thoughts? Eight, four, four, nine hundred buck. Also, uh, if you want to tweet at me during the show, if you're on Twitter at Buck Sexton and I will try to respond during the breaks. Um, We'll be right back. Stay with me. Lines are lit here in the Freedom Hunt. Let's hear what you've got to say, Uh, Team Buck. And I know a lot of you have a lot to say about this. Mike in North Carolina, WPTI. What's going on, Mike?
8: Yes, thank you for taking my call. The first thing I wanted to say is that you mentioned Senator Capito brought up opioids, which is just the crisis du jour. The second thing is that Medicaid, as a single payer, is not the standard by which we need to measure medicine. The third thing is that Senator Paul in a committee with uh, Bernie said basically that forcing doctors and all the support staff to do this kind of work under this set of condition of single payer is the equivalent of slavery. You can find it on YouTube. I don't think anything will happen. I think the left is all in lockstep and they know too much of the wrong stuff and conservatives don't know enough of the right stuff to get their attention away from the act of continuing to live under Mike,
4: let me ask, do you think that full repeal in the Senate should happen? And do you think the House should follow
8: suit? Yes, I do. And I think that uh, your last guess was spot on, that basically if it's not in the Constitution, it's not. And the only thing that I can think of is two-thirds to override uh, a veto and three-quarters of the states to amend and three-quarters for a ratification of a treaty. Other than that, I can't think of what a vote is needed beyond a majority.
4: All right, Mike, down in North Carolina. Thank you, Shields High. Uh, Jerry also in North Carolina WPTI. What's going on?
5: Hello, sir. How are you this evening?
4: I'm good, sir. Thank you for calling in.
5: Yes, sir. I just wanted to uh ask you a question if we thought that uh healthcare should be repealed and I believe it should. I also believe the Republicans should follow through on all the promises that they made during the uh election process. I think they should follow through with building the wall i think they should repeal if they can't replace at least repeal health care and start over um i think they should follow through with the drilling for oil all of those promises they made put everybody back to work america first and the one payer
3: single payer they yeah go
5: to that, can you hear me sir
4: yes sir single payer you're saying yes
5: yeah the single payer if it I'm afraid that the research that we have now for cures for stuff like cancer, diabetes, so forth and so on, will be harmed. I don't think the health care that we have in America will be the same quality that it is now. I think that it will really slack off on what we're able to get in health care.
4: Uh, Jerry, I think that's true. I think you remove... The profit motive, profit incentive from healthcare entirely, and we, we see what that does in every other sector. Jared, thank you for calling in. Um, I've dealt with this. You know, If you go into a doctor's office, and I, I know to make this all about the difference between going to see, say, a, a dermatologist and going to see an overworked uh, GP uh, who's taking your insurance, but you know, if you go into a, a fee-for-service office where they're doing a lot of procedures where you're paying either on a credit card, check, or cash— it's just a different experience because they have an incentive to make you want to come back to make you happy with the process if you're going in there and you're paying 10 bucks or 20 bucks and you're paying a copay and that's it you know what are you going to do that's what your insurance company that's the doctor your insurance company will let you go see so in little ways you can already tell what it would be like and imagine if the government never mind that insurance company the government is like well now this is the doctor you're allowed to see this is the doctor who's doing you know your dad's heart surgery. This is the doctor who's uh, doing your child's tonsillectomy or whatever. I mean that. You know that's that's no longer going to be in your hands at all. Uh, that should not sit well with you. So I, look, the single payer argument. We're going to hear more of it. It's not quite there yet because we, uh, meaning that it's not reached a critical mass. Because if the Republicans repeal, uh, if they repeal, by by the way, I don't think they're going to. I think that the 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 um, the mess just continues on. I think this stumbling, wounded Congress of just buffoonery. Uh, I, I don't think that they're going to be able to fig- figure it out in time. I really don't. Um, you know, I think they're going to go back to the drawing board on this, and I think that you're going to see a move to other other areas. Um, I think that you're going to see a, a move to other places. You know, taxes and whatever. They're, they're going to move on with the agenda. Um that's what I think is gonna happen. Uh, let's see, uh Guy in Mississippi on WJDX. Hey Guy.
9: Hello Buck. Uh as many of our previous uh commentators uh talked about, uh the Republicans have total control today. And when you're in command, as my said, when you're in command, command. If the Democrats were in the same situation as they had been. I remember back in the day when the Democrats, they had total control. I mean, the Republican Party was a minority for decades, and they couldn't do anything. Now the Republican Party has everything, and they can't get it done. They need to move forward whatever it takes to, to proceed with their promises. I'm just, I mean, Ryan and McConnell, I mean, I don't, I'm not a fan of either one of them. They're, 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 ones that they're, they're taking the heavy lifting here, and they're, they're not providing support for Trump and what he wants to do. And if the Republican Party can't get together now when well, they have everything, they have all they want, and here they are. But
4: well, what's the point, right? I mean, a Guy, at some, at some point we have to ask, well, why even go through the motions? Why vote for them? Why give them power? What's the point? Exactly. What's the point of the Republican Party if they that's can't get exactly. this done? I think we gotta that's ask exactly. these questions. I mean
9: that's exactly right. I mean, why why even go to the polls when we when we're voting for them to proceed with an agenda and once they get control they can't get it done? I mean, what's the point? I mean, you know, Yeah, that, no, look, I think, up, I think and that's I think that's the and relevant then, question, then, guy, and,
4: and hopefully they'll have an answer for you coming up here. Thank you very much for calling in. Um Let's see, uh, we have uh, Bradley in Arizona. Yes, sir, what's up?
0: But I just wanted to comment. I appreciate what you're doing. It's uh, excellent. I love the comedic bit of it as well. But I wanted to talk about the paper tiger that is the Republicans and, and the amount of bluster that they spoke of pre-Trump and uh, you know, and how now it's all come to fruition that they are in fact
4: paper tigers well, yeah, I think that's why they're they're in a they're between a rock and a hard place right now because they can't get their bill through and they won't do repeal, so to borrow from my uh, one of my favorite movies, office Space, Senate Republicans, what would you say you do here
0: <laughs> Thank you, Michael
4: a- Bolton. Yeah, exactly. It's a it's a fair question though, right? I mean the senator, you know, Mitch McConnell's basically saying, I'm a people person. I'm good with people. I mean he doesn't have an answer.
0: <laughs> well, the other thing that I wanted to touch upon, and then I'll I'll go down the dusty trail, is has anybody ever lived in a single payer country? I, I've spent time in the UK and I gotta tell you, the people that live there if you're, if you're a single-payer participant, it means you cannot afford a private hospital, a private physician. It stinks. It is the, the correlation to our current VA system. It's, it's, it's a terrible system. And if you want to sign on for that, you know, the people that really need it the most, the, your, your poor, your downtrodden, et cetera, they're going to be rolled over in a single-payer system. And you think it's bad now? It's only going
4: to get worse. Oh, Absolutely, and look, I, I could have people call in. I've got friends, and we could have Charles Cook tell us what it's like. Uh, you know, get him from National Review to join us. He's from the UK. He's a U.S. citizen now, but uh, you know, we could have people call in and tell you what it's like, tell you stories. Bradley Shields High, thanks for calling in. Um, but you do not trust me. You do not want the government in charge of your. You do not want the government in charge of the provision of healthcare, which is what's the, the case in the UK, as well as the paying of all health care it's ruinous for budgets it's ruinous for economic growth and it just means your care will be substandard to what it could otherwise be um i I do want to uh get into the latest on some uh investigatory investigative updates we'll do that coming up
2: he's back with you now because when it comes to the fight for truth the buck never stops
4: we got Andy McCarthy on the line, everybody. He is a former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. He is a contributing editor at National Review. He's also a best-selling author. You can read his latest at nationalreview.com. Andy, great to have you back.
1: Buck, thanks for having me.
4: Uh, so, Andy, we didn't get a chance to uh, hear your thoughts on the most recent— uh, the most recent data dumps and, and news cycles with regard to all the investigations going on around this administration. Uh, I just wanted your, your, your big think uh, right now, your your sort of 30,000 foot view of, is, is there a problem here where, you know, if, if you were advising the Trump campaign, i sorry, the Trump administration, would you be worried if you were their
1: lawyer? Well, I'd be worried from the moment there's a special counsel, Appointed Buck because you know, once that happens, where the investigation ends up is not necessarily anywhere remotely close to where it began. So, I would have said that even before there was any concrete evidence of collusion. And when I say there's now concrete evidence of collusion, I, it, it still doesn't mean we know collusion in what, uh, but I don't think it's credible any longer to say there's no evidence. Uh, of uh, some coordination between the, the Russian regime and the Trump campaign. Um, so my advice to them at this point would be kind of the opposite of what they've been doing, which I think has gotten them in more trouble than anything else. Uh, they've taken the approach of you know, basically don't tell them nothing until you figure out what they have and then, you know, give a little bit more. And to be more concrete about that, I think that's what got uh, Don Trump Jr. in trouble. He gave uh, conflicting explanations of uh, his connections and the the campaign's uh, connections with Russians during the campaign. And as a result, he looked much worse than maybe the reality of the situation dictates because it looks like uh, probably nothing uh, terribly earth-shattering happened at this meeting, but because Trump Jr. initially said there was no such meeting and then gave a sort of um, uh, mendaciously incomplete view of what or, or depiction of what the meeting uh, entailed and then finally disclosed his emails about it only because the New York Times was about to beat him to the punch, Uh, you know, because he did that, did it that way. He's kind of, uh, you know, you're seeing the death of a thousand cuts and you're seeing somebody who, who looks uh, shifty and acts guilty. So my advice to them would be to get everything out. As long as there's nothing to hide at this point, I would just put it out publicly. And the other thing I'd be doing, if there's anything to it, Buck, is uh, I'd be getting the competing narrative out there about uh, any you know, with respect to any evidence that they may have of Obama administration spying on the Trump campaign. Now they've been they haven't done that, and as you and I have discussed before, the president is the person in this government who owns uh, classified information. If they wanted to put out uh, you know unclassified summaries tomorrow of who did the unmasking and who was unmasked and what the circumstances were, uh, the president could order that to be done. And the fact that he hasn't ordered it to be done leads me to believe that even if there's something there, you know, maybe the Trump people don't want all of it to come out or don't think that all of it is uh, is helpful to them. But I'd be of a mind to try to get everything out there that you could, and look like you were trying to get to the bottom of this and get it behind you.
4: That's certainly on on the public relations side of it, Andy. That that would, and on the to the general narrative side of it, that makes sense to me. And I've been uh, befuddled is one way to put it. Uh, the uh, the way that specifically Donald Trump Jr., who obviously has a tremendous uh, team of people, tremendous resources at its disposal, uh, the way that it's been handled since the initial uh, news story broke, I, I just don't understand. I don't understand why. You know, now we have CNN reporting that there was an eighth person at that Trump Tower meeting. Now we have reporting, addition, uh, additionally, that there was a, a second uh, hour-long meeting between Putin and at the G20 and Trump. Uh, you know these things keep keep coming out. We keep finding out things uh, that don't look particularly good and and I think that that's making this whole situation harder for the administration than it has to be. Just a question though on, on the special counsel side of things. I mean when, when you were a prosecutor uh, was it something you would take into account? Was it something that the uh, US Attorney's office if someone came to them and said, "Look, Uh, here's what happened, here's the stuff I've got, here's the context for it. Uh, I don't want you to think that this is something that it wasn't. You know, is that, uh, you know, obviously you have lawyers present for this and such, but is that sometimes the better option? I'm just thinking about how they'll approach this because now there's reporting that special counsel's looking at this meeting. So is it oh. ever the uh, is it ever the situation, Andy, where you'll have the lawyer say, okay, look, we're going to come in, tell the U.S. attorney's office everything because there's nothing, you know, we, we don't believe we've done anything wrong. We want to make sure they hear our side of the story and they don't have to find it first. Or is it always, nah, you got you know, they're going to wait and see if the U.S. attorney's office finds it. Does that, do you see what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Buck, it's interesting. When I first started as a prosecutor – let me let me answer your question first, which is, yes, that's always important, and it's always relevant, and it's always a hard call for a defense lawyer to make because you have to decide, is this something that the government would have uh, stumbled upon if we didn't disclose it uh, versus we didn't really do anything terribly wrong here? Let's tell them what happened and – uh, fall on our sword to the extent that, you know we can do that, and then convince them that because we've been good citizens about it, that we shouldn't be charged, or at least that that should be taken into account. When I started as a as a prosecutor, that was always kind of um, in a in an unwritten way the rule of the road. Now it's in a written way since we've gotten uh, sentencing guidelines, which started right around uh, 1987 and have been periodically. Uh, I guess, annually um, amended ever since then, it's now actually written into the sentencing guidelines, particularly in corporate enforcement, um, that one of the considerations that the, that uh, goes into sentencing very heavily is whether the enterprise that you're talking about uh, actually came in and disclosed uh, if they came upon evidence that uh, at least arguably was evidence of, of wrongdoing uh, and what measures they took to, uh, you know, to investigate it and to cure it and to cooperate with the government. All that stuff is now actually written into our law, so It's very important.
4: But in, in the case of, for example, Donald Trump Jr. possibly meeting with the special counsel, if he, if there's anything that we don't know but that the special counsel may be coming into or maybe not, it, would it matter could – it, could it be useful or to his advantage – and again, I'm, I'm theorizing here, but I'm just trying to understand how these things work – to go to Mueller or whomever and say, look, just so you understand, this is, the ad- this is the additional context, this is everything that's going on, or do you think that it's uh, – th- is that too risky?
1: Well, it's only risky if you've done something that, you, you know, that you're trying to conceal. If, uh, this is my, co- you know, my take on what the common sense of the situation tells us, that, uh, is that even though we now know about this meeting that we learned about about a week ago, That doesn't erase the fact that this has been investigated pretty hard by the FBI and the intelligence community for over a year, and they haven't come up at this point to – as far as uh, we know from people who've looked at the evidence, they haven't come up with anything concrete that's terribly disturbing about the Trump campaign. Assuming that that's true – and I do assume that until we we learn otherwise – I think their best play is to go in and say – here's what we know. But if I were a lawyer in this situation, I, I must say I would want to take, uh, you know, Donald Trump Jr. and other people similarly situated aside. And, you know, in as respectful a way as you can do it, which is not always very respectful in these situations, uh, beat on them until they understand that, you know, you got to tell them everything or tell them nothing. I mean, I always, I always think with the, uh, with people having looked at this from both sides of it, but particularly as a prosecutor, you are much better off. If you're dealing with me as a prosecutor, you're much better off saying, um, with due respect, I'm going to take my Fifth Amendment privilege than you are coming in and telling me half a story. So a defense lawyer's challenge, I think, in these situations is to get the client to understand we play it either one way or we play it the other way. There's no half measures here because there's nothing worse with the government than going in, taking the uh, taking the tone like you're being um, transparent, but holding back information that it, that can only make it go wrong for you. So unless the guy is ready to go in and tell the whole story, I would I'd keep him out.
4: We're speaking to Andy McCarthy. He is a uh, editor at National Review, nationalreview.com, for his articles, and also he's a best selling author. Andy, what was your last book?
1: Uh, the last one, oddly enough, was. Uh, Faithless Execution, which is a book I wrote about impeachment, I kind of feel fucked now like I should have held on to it for a couple of years. Well,
4: yeah, because you're, you're concerned—that's uh, a good segue here— you're concerned that even if—and you're again, Andy's a former for decades as a federal prosecutor here in New York City. Uh, you're concerned that even if there's no crime, which I think a lot of people that are predisposed or or feel comp- you know th- that will defend Trump— but by the way, I'm not a lawyer, I'm never a prosecutor, but I, I don't see what the crime is in the meeting, and I think that you know, people are, are making a much bigger deal out of the exchange of information there than they should in, in, a, in a criminal sense of it, right? Because, you know, now it's like if someone emails, you know, if someone emails you information that Hillary has taken bribes from such and such and you act on that, if it's a foreign government, are you in trouble now? You don't know. I mean, you know, there's. I, I think that that creates very real First Amendment problems is what I'm trying to say. Um, But, you know, you it, on the the,
1: op- the opposition research thing.
4: Yeah. The opposition research thing. Yeah, um, I
1: agree
10: with that.
4: Yeah. Uh, but on the on the impeachment side of the equation, as you point out and have researched and have written, he's written a book on this, that doesn't have to be your face in federal prison time. That can just be your being sketchy and unethical. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, l- let me let me because I uh, we, we broached the subject. Let me put my cards on the table at the, at the beginning to say, I don't think Trump has been shown to have done anything impeachable to this point. And if we continue along the way that we're, we're currently going, I, I, don't, I don't see it. But I think it's important to broach it because in our system, and this is the reason I, I, you know, I, I wrote the book to try to explain our system. I didn't, I, I didn't think there was any political prospect that Obama was ever going to be impeached. My my point in writing the book was to try to explain to people that in this system, when executive misconduct is at issue, the the question is impeachment. It's not you don't prosecute the president in the criminal justice system. You know when you're dealing with pre, when you're dealing with executive excess, the question is is it serious serious enough to impeach and remove the president or not? And when the framers put the standard of impeachment. Uh, in the Constitution by high crimes and misdemeanors. This was a, a decisive check they gave to Congress. They did not confine it to indictable crimes. It's a term of art that refers to basically abuses of uh, of power or unfitness from uh, for office, and it's a political remedy, not a legal one.
4: But, Andy, uh, so you don't think you've seen anything – that would uh, would cross the threshold into this. But are, are you or are, are you more concerned now than you've ever been? Are you still kind of withholding judgment in terms of the administration and where this is all going?
1: I'm more concerned than I was before, Buck, because before I, I just poo pooed the whole idea of collusion since we had gone a year and there hadn't been any evidence of it. Now we have some evidence of it. I don't see it as collusion in the sense of conspiracy. For conspiracy, you need to have a crime that the people agreed to commit. Right now, what we have is collusion on the transmission of some opposition research that turns out not to have been very much. And I, I I'm making that conclusion not because I think Donald Trump Jr. is an impeccable impeccable source. I think at this point he's he's given enough uh, con- contradictory accounts of this uh, meeting that I wouldn't take what he said at face value. But there's another person who was there, this uh, former Russian counterintelligence uh, uh, agent who accompanied the uh, Russian lawyer, the woman, uh, to meet with uh, Trump Jr. He says that um, she gave the Trump people a plastic file uh, which contained these uh, documents that she said contained or showed uh, illegal payoffs. By Russian people to the Democrat National Committee, um, if you're going to credit her, if you're going to credit his version of events on that, and I think a lot of people are, and I don't see any reason to, to doubt that he's telling the truth about that, I think you probably have to also credit the rest of his account, which matches up with what Trump Jr. is telling us. In other words, he's saying he thought the information was, was basically a big nothing that the Trump people seemed to uh, ask her a few questions and she wasn't really able to answer them and said they needed to do a little more research on it, and he thought it was a big nothing. Um, That seems to corroborate, as far as I can tell, uh, Trump Jr. Well, one quick thing, Trump Andy, because I've seen
4: people saying this, and, and we got to run a break in a second. But sure. conspiracy, which which is a criminal charge, for example, if the and this is not what happened, but just people are, are surmising a lot. If the Trump campaign had said, "Yeah, get us whatever great information you can," and then the Russians went in, hacked, and did something illegal, and came back, and, and unless you could prove that the Trumps. Had said, yeah, go hack right. That that wouldn't count either. It would have to be you'd have to be knowing in the conspiracy. You can't just be a recipient in the conspiracy. Does that make sense?
1: Yes. Although you did ask me about my books, my first book was called Willful Blindness, which um, there is a doctrine of law called conscious avoidance, um, which which means you can't stick your head in the sand to avoid uh, learning information that. You know, neon lights are telling you is is criminal. So you could get down to the question whether um, they had reason to think the Russians were going to go about uh, getting information by illegal means, and they, you know, hid their head in the sand about that. And whether that's enough to fill the knowledge gap. I think if we got to that, we'd have a much more serious conversation about impeachment. Um, in which case, it wouldn't you wouldn't have to prove the prosecutable crime that you'd have to that you'd be able to prove in court um you know it, right it, it would it would
4: but, be a high crimes and misdemeanor side of it um right. all right Andy. Uh, by the way as Andy says nothing yet he's just he's just looking at it he's keeping an eye on it but nothing yet that would be uh impeachable andy mccarthy of national review everybody andy thank you so much for giving us your time thank you buck team hitting a break we'll be right back You know, team, it's uh, Made in America Week and uh, the White House pushing that agenda and wanting everyone to focus in on some of the positive manufacturing and uh, corporate and... uh various various stories from within the commercial sector, uh, we will have a an entrepreneur and a veteran joining us in just a few minutes to talk about his success story, also a sponsor of the show, which is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, and uh, later on, we'll also have somebody from a an iconic enormous corporation joining to tell us about some of their Made in America initiatives and what they're up to. Um, I know that the Trump administration has recertified the Iran deal. If I do not get into that at some length today, I will certainly do that tomorrow, but I'm just realizing we got a a lot of show to fit in and not that much time, but I've also got a lot of calls coming in van in North Carolina, WPTI. What's on your mind, sir.
11: Hi, Buck. Nice talking to you. Um, I'm a retired physician. And I, I think that the uh, healthcare reform bill is very doable. I think there are four essential parts to it. The first part is a repeal, which means no one will be enrolled as of the day of passage of the bill and the Medicaid expansion also will stop as of the day of passage of the bill. That's the section one. Section two is what do we do with all those people who are already in it? And I would suggest that we put them into a Medicaid ex- uh, a Medicaid type of program and the states will manage them for about three years. And after that, they're on their own, their own. And the third section would be- We have one minute to get through your two Medicaid,
4: sections, so go Medicaid ahead.
11: Expansion. Uh, what do we do with Medicaid expansion? So, similarly, we can uh, put a date limit, uh, a time limit on it, and then they're on their own. They have to qualify by state standards. Uh, And the fourth one is the most important one, is where we give consumer choices to the people. We give choices to insurance companies, to the uh, providers, and to the consumers. And that's where you stimulate market competition. We are not going to replace Obamacare with another program. I, I think, think that's where they're all arguing about it, and they shouldn't. They should do consumer
4: choices. Van, very astute analysis. I agree with you. Thank you very much for calling in. we got a retired physician weighing in. Much appreciated, it, sir. Shields high. Uh, team, we're going to talk to an entrepreneur and a veteran, and uh, we got a lot more in just a few. Stay with me through the break. <laughs>
2: He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Team, I talked to you about
4: how I am a coffee drinker. Uh, and in fact, I right now have a cup of coffee in my hand. But it comes from a very special company, one that is a sponsor of Buck Sexton with America now. And it's a company with a story that I want to tell all of you. Black Rifle Coffee Company. Uh, company, We have the CEO joining us now, Evan Hafer of Black Rifle Coffee Evan, great to have you on. Uh, Great to be here, Buck. Thank you very much for having me. Evan is an Army Special Forces veteran. He spent the first 14 years of his career in the U.S. Army as an infantryman and a Special Forces soldier. Uh, But, Evan, you're not just a guy who's got skill with firearms. You have skill with coffee roasting as well. Tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got to this place where you founded Black Rifle Coffee.
10: Well, uh, I actually started my coffee journey back in 1997. I moved to Seattle and, uh, to, to go to college, and ultimately I met some really attractive barista, and she turned me on to <laughs> Great Espresso, <laughs> just like every good story. It starts with a girl, right? Um, she turned me on to Great Espresso, and from there, I fell in love with coffee, just coffee in general. Uh, I went out and, and attended the special forces qualification course out at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Afterwards, uh, I, I went back to Seattle. I was still just kind of infatuated with getting the perfect shot of espresso. I'm an Americano guy. And, uh, I, I, I flew over to Kuwait in preparation for the invasion of Iraq and everybody on my ODA was like, Hey, what, what do you got for coffee, man? Because we don't want to invade this country without just some awesome coffee so I uh, I got online and I ordered a ton of great coffee. I modified our vehicles so we could actually grind in the field. And uh, we had French press coffee every morning uh, until we we ultimately ran out. And that kind of started this infatuation with with coffee that lasted the next you know decade and some change. In all actuality, you and I have some similar paths because, I was working for the agency, uh, in a selection and vetting course, uh, doing some, uh, designing and implementing advanced carbine and tactics. And, uh, I was roasting coffee out on the range when a bunch of guys were telling me, man, you should really start a coffee company. So, you know, I used to have these long dissertations about, you know, the carbine and how beautiful the rifle was and And uh, it ultimately came to me. I was like, man, Black Rifle Coffee Company was born literally on the range one pound at a time.
4: Evan Haver, everybody, is a is a special weapons and tactics expert as as well as a coffee connoisseur, uh, somebody who really knows his way. Uh, around a what do you say French press I, I've got to even learn some of this stuff here you, you go well well beyond me I'm just used to paying way too much for coffee in New York until now because I've got my black yeah. rifle coffee sitting with me here I am in fact drinking silencer smooth in between uh, radio segments so it is delicious sir thank you for that but tell me a bit about how you pledge to hire 10,000 veterans in response to Starbucks pledging to hire 10,000 immigrants
10: well, I think you know the 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 response initially was literally. I think the 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 focus of the media attention that was given to that specifically was 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 fairly robust, and people were inflating this idea, right? And ultimately, I, I just thought the logistics of that are impossible. One, it's like there's so many different things that we'd have to talk about. You know, does this guy have a special relationship with the state department in order to identify refugees in order to pull them into the market, pull them into, you know, the, the private market? Is this, this is not a legitimate uh, act, meaning like I really don't think that this can happen. And so, you know, Matt, myself, Matt Best and myself, we were sitting on a podcast and I was like, you know, if, if we continue to grow like this, this is possible for us to hire 10,000 veterans and literally it was born in when i say a 10 minute conversation it was we were already planning on a franchise expansion you know and we had already been discussing or with you know our franchise development guys uh how we were going to roll this out i talked to some really you know, some smart guys about it and i asked them i sent out some texts like is it possible for us to do this And they're like absolutely man you could you could definitely do this if you rolled out your expansion of between 500 and 700 stores within the next six years. Uh, This was, this is absolutely possible. So we launched a meme that ultimately created a a very robust rift between us and them. And ultimately, you know, I looked at, you know, the, the, the other side and I'm like, there's nothing really separating them from us other than you know, they were appliance salesmen before they launched coffee company and hell, you know, if we were leading fire teams in Helmand or downtown Baghdad, I'm pretty sure that qualifies me as one, one rung above an appliance salesman.
4: We're speaking to Evan Hafer. He's CEO of Black Rifle Coffee Company. You can go to, uh, blackriflecoffee.com. They're of course a sponsor of the show. Much appreciated. Evan's telling us his story about how he went from being an army special forces veteran to a, a coffee entrepreneur and, uh, uh, I, I'm hoping a coffee mogul. Uh, so tell me a bit about uh, just in general, uh, what were your experiences as a veteran trying to start your own business? And people talk about entrepreneurship and how, in particular, the veterans community has a lot of folks that are starting and want to start their own businesses. I just wanted you to speak to that.
10: Yeah, I think that, you know, we have to break it down to the numbers. Uh, you know, there's about 24 million veterans in the United States with under or unemployment rates that exceed the national average and you know veterans come from a certain subculture they have identified skills that they've learned throughout you know the course of their service to the country and a lot of those are qualifying factors to become good business owners Um, i wrote my first business plan from a five paragraph op order and our our, ultimately, what that landed me was was a was a was a great job with a great group of guys, and they did fund the company. It wasn't Black Rifle; it was a different company. But we did start to explore this idea several years ago that our service could directly translate into uh, a distinction within the community as a business owner. So what I say is, I like to try to empower, employ, and emancipate veterans through my actions, and you know creating that opportunity is very important uh, i think when i made my transition you know i had led uh, a significant amount of operations overseas uh, i'd led men i'd managed men and logistics and accounting i'd done a lot of different things that could directly translate over into the small business world it made it a lot easier for me but i really had to think about it in the context of What were the skills that the military taught me and how do those translate over into the business world? I spent the first, I don't know, three days writing my business plan and translating straight off the small business uh, association's website into the five paragraph operations order because I could speak this language, you know, I can brief something, I can write, but I needed to be able to write my mission, you know, write my mission statement out and then flow my objectives and logistics and the assumptions and all these things into that, and something that made sense to me and ultimately would make sense to civilians that weren't in the military. And I think that abrupt transition from government service into business, I kind of learned by fire. It was OJT, and uh, it wasn't easy. <laughs> it's definitely not easy. So I've made it a a mission in my life. Uh, I hope you don't mind. I mean, I have a business podcast. I won't won't necessarily stump it unless you tell me. No, go right ahead. What's your business Uh, podcast? (laughs) um, So it's called Blackhearted. It's, you know, available on iTunes. And really all that is, is really about empowering, employing, and emancipating uh, men and women from government service. And it is definitely one of our definable objectives with black rifle is to lead the business in an ethical way that can inspire and motivate the men and women that have served the country to go out and stand their, stand up their own companies or businesses.
4: Evan, can I ask you a couple of rapid fire questions? Yeah, please. Yeah. You, you can only, you could only have one rifle. What rifle would that be?
10: Yeah. Uh, I think it would be a, uh, Novesky. So a Novesky AR, so we could vary the calibers depending, but definitely a novesky rifle.
4: Best coffee
10: beans in the world come from what country? Ooh, I would say Ethiopia. Ethiopia is the birthplace of coffee. The, the history goes back to goat herders uh, several thousand years ago, and Ethiopia still produces the, the most amazing tasted, tasting coffee in the world.
4: And if uh, you could only have, you could have your own beans from Black Rifle, but if you could only have one coffee drink every day for the rest of your life, same drink, what would it be?
10: AK-47 espresso, double Americano with eight ounces of water.
4: There you go, everybody. All right. Evan Hafer, CEO of Black Rifle Coffee Company and also U.S. Army Special Forces veteran. Check out BlackRifleCoffee.com. Proud sponsor of Buck Sexton with America Now. The Freedom, Hut, the Freedom Hut is fueled with Black Rifle Coffee, my friends. Evan, thank you so much for making the time. Congrats on your success, and uh, thank you for partnering up with us. We uh, We appreciate it. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be on the show. All right, thank you. Team, we're going to hit a quick break. We'll take your calls. We'll talk Iran deal recertification and a bunch of other things as well. Stay with me. Have you gotten your uh, Freedom Hut t-shirt yet, by the way? Have you checked out uh, the Team Buck gear that we have available on com? Please do go check it out. We also have Buck Slap up there. We haven't done Buck Slaps in a while. And Commie Bear, those of you who are old school fans know what Commie Bear is. We are working on... Getting some comedy bear stuff going here in the Freedom Hut, and I know if you're listening, you're like, "What is that?" Don't, it'll it'll all make sense, trust me. We've got a lot of projects working here in the Freedom Hut, but uh, do go to bucksaxon.com/slash/store and uh, you can check out gear. We're, we're sending out T-shirts to people, uh, so do uh, do please check out the uh, check out the swag, the gear we got up on the site. Um, the uh, tr- uh, Trump administration, by the way. Oh, wait, and one more thing. On iTunes, please do subscribe. Buck Sexton with America Now. Those of you who are listening, uh, you can download the podcast. If you ever miss a show, it'll be there waiting for you. And uh, also, you can always, always listen, even if you're out of uh, traditional terrestrial radio range or you're just, you know, if you're in the office and you can't listen to radio but you've got an internet connection, the iHeart app, just download the iHeart app, type in Buck Sexton with America Now. We've got a lot of folks listening on the iHeart app and uh, really appreciate that. It's a core part of of team buck so all that said we have the trump administration well this is what donald trump uh, and the iran deal uh the deal has been certified uh so that's what i'm seeing here from the hill i had a feeling based on the early reporting this will happen uh, this was going to happen and here's what trump was saying about the iran deal during the campaign if you'll recall
3: they will know i'm not playing games i hate to inherit a bad deal and I know some of my compatriots said we won't honor the deal that's a little tough I, I like to honor deals they have the money Well, no. by the time I get there they will be very rich because Obama will have given them all of these many billions of dollars etc cetera, etc cetera. however I study contracts I'm a I'm a you know in golf I say I'm a plus five at contracts okay no matter how bad this contract is I will make this contract be enforced to such an extent that they will not be able to do it and then I will do things that you won't believe
4: Okay, so that was during the campaign. Now here we are. The Trump administration is—well, this is what the the Hill has written on this. The Trump administration certified Iran's compliance with the nuclear agreement reached two years ago under the Obama administration, but said Iran is, quote, in default of the spirit of the accord. A senior administration official told reporters that the White House will certify to Congress that Iran is meeting the provisions— ...of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, but stressed that it plans to take a broader approach to combat Iran's other malign activities, including additional sanctions for Iran's action outside the scope of the nuclear deal. See, uh, there's all, this is a very complicated issue, but I'm going to try to boil it down to its essence as much as possible. Iran complying with the deal is not surprising... Because, at least in large part, right, whether there's little efforts to, and keep in mind, do we even know if they're trying to conceal activity? Would we, that's, that's always a moving target as well, finding out if there are violations, assuming they're violating it in meaningful ways. But it's to Iran's benefit right now to comply with the deal. They're getting the money. They're getting the easing of sanctions, and they don't have to destroy their nuclear program. They really just hit pause on it. Right, and they will become a stronger country economically and militarily in the years ahead because they have essentially an international blessing for their existing program. Right, they are not worried right now about some uh, coalition from wherever uh, with an airstrike, which people in the past were saying, "Oh, I, I don't know, they might, they might hit Iran's facilities." and that's that's not a concern right now under the—or at least, you know, it's not one we're hearing about—with um, the Iranian regime based on the framework, based on the agreement that has been reached. The Iranians have received already a lot of economic relief and sanctions relief as a result of this. The regime is uh, stronger now than it was years ago. And so, of course, they're going to continue on with the deal, because it's a great deal for them. It's a bad deal for the rest of us, because at the end of— I mean, the rest of the world, really— because at the end of this, you have a richer, more powerful, more militarily advanced Iran that will have a very short breakout time to weaponize nuclear capability. Um, Now, that might be some years down the line, and in a sense, the Iranians are taking advantage of— the short political attention span that we all deal with in this country of, well, by the time we find out how bad the Obama deal really is, the Obama administration will be long gone and the Democrats will be making all kinds of excuses about how the failures of the Iran deal are someone else's fault, right? That Iran's uh, more uh, aggressive and uh, more lethal foreign policy in the Middle East and beyond is not the result of the Iran or of the Obama era deal, but of some other whatever the is, They'll come up with something, right? Trump's really mean, so Iran's doing all this stuff. I mean, they'll have something to say, or whomever's the president when we really are no longer able to avoid the obvious reality of the failure of the Iran deal. Um, but the administration is saying that they're in default of the spirit, so. They are going to try to rein them in on other aspects of Iranian policy, right? They still have uh, they still have Iranian support for terrorism, human rights abuse uh, e- abuses, uh, their hostility to Israel, their support for Bashar al-Assad's regime in Syria. These are all places where we can try to apply pressure. And there are st- still certainly ways that the administration will be able to show its displeasure uh with iran but i have to say it's it's not as easy to get out of this agreement as some people thought it would be um they're they're gonna have to wait and see what happens with keep in mind we're not the only party to this as well so the administration will turn on the heat and we'll see if that actually bears uh bears fruit uh bruce in pennsylvania in the iheart app i got about a minute but i wanted to get you in what's up? Um,
0: well, I was wanted to talk to you about Ronna McDaniel, the RNC chairwoman, and what is she doing? We don't hear anything from her. If Congress you know, won't do anything, what she needs to do when it comes to the Affordable Care Act is come out and say, hey, any senator, any member of the House of Representatives, if you don't vote for a straight-up appeal, no strings attached, we're going to primary you, and we're going to get you out of there. As the American people voted, we want Obamacare gone.
4: We'll have to see. I mean, that, that would certainly have an effect. Uh, but I don't know if we're going to – I think the Republicans are – they're scrambling right now. Uh, I'm sure the RNC is an interesting place to be right now. It would be fun to be a fly on the wall there. Bruce in Pennsylvania. See, another guy listening on the iHeart app, everybody. Great way to listen into the show. Bruce, thank you so much. Uh, Team, I'm going to talk to you about some uh, economic issues. We've got somebody joining us from Walmart in just a little bit, and then also Betsy DeVos and campus sexual assault tribunals.
2: Buck Sexton with America Now. We are bold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles, shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in. 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825.
4: Welcome back, team. So it is uh, Made in America week, and we are going to be joined in just a few minutes by someone who can tell us about one of the most iconic companies in the country, in the world, in fact, a company that is associated with all things America and uh, some of their... Efforts right now to make products uh, in the country and and some of their initiatives, uh, but I, I did want to talk a little bit first about some of the some of the the trends that I see happening that you are not hearing much about these days, but y- you probably should when it comes to what's going on in in our economy. I, I know that, and, and I talked to you a little bit about this yesterday. I know that there is a sense that right now. Uh, things are good, and that's, objectively speaking, true today, meaning that the stock market's in a good place. There aren't uh, major e- economic uh, pain. There aren't major economic uh, problems that people are dealing with right now. The economic pain seems kind of, uh, well, certainly less than it's been in years past. Uh, but, but I see some some big issues. I mean, there was a, a piece in the Wall Street Journal that was fascinating looking at just one sector of the economy that, again, you're not going to hear much about because we got to hear about Trump and Russia and all this other stuff, but farmers. Farmers are, if you want to speak about an an iconic part of American commerce, I mean, farmers since the founding have been an important part of this nation. And recently what we've seen happening is that farmers are... Buying incredibly expensive equipment, incredibly expensive machinery, including tractors that cost $250,000, some of these harvesting machines. And I'm learning all about this. And I'm the first one to tell you, you know, my my family, my, my grandparents had a place in what we call upstate. But really upstate New York people laugh at that because they're like two hours from New York City is not really upstate. Like upstate is practically Canada. But my grandparents ha- lived lived in that part of the state, and and they had neighbors that were uh, they had neighbors that had a horse farm, a goat farm. With a, I actually I'm somebody who loves goat milk and uh, thinks that it's delicious. I, I like goat milk frozen yogurt. That's right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna drop some some uh, some bourgeois tastes here. I like goat milk frozen yogurt. I'll even put goat milk in my coffee sometimes. A little tangy, but I like it. A little higher in protein. Than uh, than than cow milk, which I also drink all the time. I almost drank, I almost got cashew milk this week in the store just to try it, and and just to see how funky it was. But then I didn't because America, because uh, I drink cow milk and and apparently goat milk too. So that's my only exposure really to farming is going and and you know hanging out with the goats. They're fun and there's some donkeys and I have occasionally posted photos of this up on. Uh, social media. Those of you who are on Instagram, you can follow me on Instagram, by the way, at Buck Sexton, if you're an Instagram person. And also on Facebook, you can go to facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. And, you know, occasionally I'll post photos there. The family dog, I I don't have a dog, but my my family has a dog, a French bulldog named Tallulah. She is uh, absolutely adorable and very French. One moment she loves you, the next minute she doesn't even know your name. She's very French. Uh, But no, she's a love bug. She's a lot of fun. Um, I was talking about farms though and sorry and a serious issue. I, I know I just wanted to say my uh, experience of farming is mostly like petting zoo style farms and things like that. I don't really know much about farming, but farming is a a big part of well, farming it plays a major role in in the uh, in the economy. I mean, the still we have the Department of Agriculture and this is an area where there's a tremendous amount of of, uh, of capital that is exchanging hands, and you get these very expensive machines. Um, this is, you know, like I said, the harvesting machines, the tractors, and for a, a relatively modest-sized farm, the amount of operational funds you need just to plant and harvest, and whether it's, you know, wheat or whatever it is you, you, that you're growing, wheat, corn, I mean, some of the major crops hundreds of thousands of dollars in operational funds and commodities. These commodities have been going down in recent years. And so farmers have been having a really tough time making money. But of course, they need to keep going. This is their livelihood. This is uh, this is how they are uh, supporting their families. And so there has been this shift from John Deere, which is another iconic American. We're talking about this is made in. USA week made in in America week uh John Deere which is known as a tractor company makes those green and and yellow tractors you see all over all over the place uh, they have become increasingly a financial services company so when you look at what's going on with the lending um, when you look at what's going on with John Deere specifically it has uh, put by the way agriculture I'm going to uh, let's take a break from John. I was looking for this number a second ago. Agriculture, food, and related industries com- contributed $992 billion to US GDP in 2015. So uh, that's, that's considerable. The output of America's farms uh, was $136.7 billion of that sum. So it's about 1% of overall GDP. But so you've got these farmers who are trying to keep the farms going. And John Deere wants to keep selling their products and they make world class products. And John Deere is a great company. And so they've been extending credit the same way that people have been uh, offered auto loans. And you're starting to see this. This is their auto loan defaults are going up. And if you notice the trend here, I'm talking to you about defaults going up, overextended credit, credit cycle, credit bust. There are some echoes of the mortgage crisis in some of these themes. It's not housing. It's not what we saw back in 2008. But you, there are some similarities. And the structural economic problems are still there. And auto loans, there have been hundreds of billions of dollars of auto loans put out there. And that are sub, a lot of them are subprime, meaning that these are lenders who are very unlikely to be able to... Pay back uh, what they owe. I mean, these are people that have bad credit. Uh, that the car companies, because the cost of a new car, by the way, is something. The average cost of a new car in America right now is over thirty thousand dollars if you buy a brand new car, which seems like a ton of money to me. Uh, I know that's that seems to be a pretty shocking number. I know that after your home, your car is usually your biggest purchase. But, you know, unless you're like getting Marco boats, you remember Marco Rubio with his uh, fishing boat that was 70 grand and the New York Times was acting like Rubio was, uh, you know, lighting Cuban cigars with hundred dollar bills because he had a, a $70,000 fishing boat. That was good times. Marco boats. We, we were counting the GDP of foreign countries in Marco boats. Right. Uh, but the, the truth is that you've seen this extension of John Deere into the credit markets. And they have a lot of loans outstanding. Wall Street Journal's up on this. They're writing about this. And, you know, what happens if there's an even worse turn in the commodities market? If things continue to go down for foodstuffs, if people who are running these farms all of a sudden start to default, who's going to bail them out and what's going to happen there? And and that's that's a troubling I think uh, a troubling sign of some other industries that also might be overextended and over reliant on credit. I mean, 0% interest rates, as we have seen, sure, it makes the, it, it pushes home values up and it means that big companies can borrow tons of money and acquire other companies. And, but a lot of this is uh, value that's being created out of thin air. A lot of this is credit based. And so I know I'm talking about farms, and some of you are probably farmers, but a lot of you are not. Uh, it's like I said, it's 1% of GDP is, is America's farms, but there, they're also there's an emotional and psychological attachment to our, our agrarian side in this country. But, you know, some farmers are, might be in some real trouble here because we're just getting to the point where some of those loans are coming due and there might be defaults on it and... Uh, John Deere has made... A, John Deere is the fifth largest lender. Remember, it's a tractor company. It's not a financial services company. Fifth largest lender to America's farms, right behind Bank of America. <laughs> so that's that's the kind of size of loans we're talking about here. And bank of America is obviously a huge bank, um, but the farmers might be in trouble, and that might have consequences down the line for the machinery, that uh, machine industry, and, and how that's being produced, and uh, and the vehicles that are necessary to uh to harvest your crops uh the auto industry is beginning to run into some real problems and issues, and that by the way what what happens to g m when people realize that there are too there are too many used cars on the market that are basically as good as a new car and the lease is up on them and by the way they can't extend more credit to people to buy more cars because they've already Gone after all the subprime borrowers, so uh, there there are some parts of the economy here we're talking about Made in America Week. Parts of the economy that I think could be in trouble, um, and we might see some uh, some difficulties ahead in them. But other parts of it will be will be strong and continue to grow. All right, we're we're going to be joined here in just a second by a uh, a VP from Walmart talking about America Made in USA. Let's talk about what's going on over at Walmart. We'll be back with that and more. Stay with me. All right, Team Buck, welcome back. It is Made in the USA Week, Made in America Week. This uh, this is a, an initiative of the Trump administration, and I wanted to get both uh, small businesses, entrepreneurs, and and also some major and iconic American companies represented here on the show. And well, we've got Walmart now joining us, or at least Vice President of U.S. Manufacturing Cindy Marsiglio from Walmart. She's going to tell us what's going on at one of the most iconic of all companies. Thank you so much for joining, Cindy.
6: Oh, thanks for having us. We couldn't be more thrilled to talk about our U.S. manufacturing commitment.
4: Yeah, please tell me about this two hundred and fifty billion dollars worth billion dollars worth of American made products by twenty twenty three. What are you guys doing?
6: Absolutely. Well, first, let me start by by saying something that I, I often find myself having to sort of level set that this is a two hundred and fifty billion dollar more commitment than what we were already sourcing in the U.S. And about two-thirds of what we already spend for U.S. products um, are on products made, grown, sourced here in the U.S. So that's $250 billion more. Now, we're a large grocer, of course, and sell a lot of consumable products. So that's across the Walmart format, both in-store and online. But the impact of that over 10 years' time could be as many as a million new jobs across communities we serve. And, and it's just a unique role that our scale here at Walmart can play. Can
4: you give people some some background by the way? I mean, I'm sure everybody listening has shopped at Walmart. I'm sure uh, a majority of people listening probably continue to shop at Walmart. I'm not even sure. I wouldn't I couldn't even guess at the percentages. I would assume it's very very high. I was just at Walmart a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, how many how many stores do you can you give us some sense of the scale? Uh, and what are, are you the you're among the biggest companies in the world? How many stores do you operate in the country? Can you give people a sense of this iconic American company? How many places do you guys operate in and at what at what level?
6: You know, I, I do believe that Walmart is, is um, under the leadership of Sam Walton, a, a great American business success story. And today we have grown to more than 5,000 uh, locations across, um, across America. And, and our effort in U.S. manufacturing is really designed to create jobs in those communities um, and, and give our customers what, our, what they want, which is really great, high-quality, low-cost products across our stores and and clubs in every state
4: what are some products by the way that people might think of and and or people are are very familiar with that you're selling in the stores that are doing well that that are made in america i mean it is made in america week with the white house and we're trying to highlight what's done here at home uh what, what are some of the brands or some of the companies you're working with uh to sell their products in stores that are made in america
6: you know, we are focused on growing with all of our suppliers we are currently doing business with, um, companies that sell some great seasonal items in store today, like Coleman Coolers or Lifetime Kayaks. There's just across a categories, companies that have been long-term partners of ours that are using our scale and leveraging our commitment to expand their footprint and reshore more of that product for Walmart. In addition to that, we're always looking for great new U.S. uh, suppliers. We just held a couple of weeks ago here in Bentonville an open call where we hosted more than 500 companies pitching their U.S. made items to our buyers. We found hundreds of great items that way. And we're anxious to get those up on our uh, virtual shelf at walmart.com as well as in our stores. So we're seeing growth and momentum across categories. And, and I just couldn't be more thrilled with the progress that we've had over the last several years.
4: We're speaking to Cindy Marsiglio. She is Walmart's vice president of U.S. manufacturing. Uh, Cindy, one of the uh, issues this week and one of the reasons why there's a an attempt to raise awareness about Uh, made in American products and and the companies here here at home uh, has to do with foreign competition. And you're clearly in contact with a lot of different American companies. What are the challenges when they speak about competing in a global marketplace? What are the challenges that they're uh, bringing to your attention? And what are the ways that Walmart works with them so that uh, U.S. manufacturing continues to thrive?
6: They continuously across the diverse supply chain that we have tell us commonly they have challenges amongst a ready workforce. They have challenges um, navigating the complexities of site selection, comparing states. It's a highly diffuse um, process to actually uh, start a new factory in the U.S. By and large, they are um, looking to diversify their global supply chain. We want our suppliers to produce products Closest to our customers. There are great business advantages to that shortened supply chain. We can keep products on the shelf and reduce risk and cost. And by the way, our customers tell us they want more US made product. In fact, seven in 10 of our customers tell us it's important, and that's a trend we don't see at diminishing at all. So we want to create those jobs in the communities where we have stores. And, and a digital presence, give our customers the great quality U.S.-made product that they want, and uh, reap all the business rewards. So that's a very sustainable proposition for us. And our suppliers um, have just been tremendous. They are they are truly the job creators and the risk-takers in this, and there's great momentum across the consumer goods categories we sell at Walmart.
4: Cindy, one more for you. People sometimes, I think this is just uh, fed to us on, on both sides of the aisle, uh politicians, the media, there's a narrative out there that we don't really make stuff in this country the way we used to. Or some people even say kind of flippantly, we don't make stuff anymore. That's really not the case at all, is it? America's, I mean, you're selling it. America's making a lot of stuff.
6: Absolutely. We want to make it easier for the customer to find those products that are made or grown here. And like I said, two thirds is already um, from the U.S., there's certainly room to do more. None of us have all the right answers um, alone, so it's truly about public-private partnership. And I think there's tremendous opportunity to play an accelerator role um, in terms of the unique scale to Walmart. We're we're all in. We think there's a lot made here. We think there's a lot of growth that we can make it go a little faster and uh, be a great partner. And that's what we've been working on for for the last several years.
4: Cindy Marsiglio, Walmart's vice president of U.S. manufacturing. Really appreciate your time, Cindy. Thank you so much for joining us.
6: Hey, thanks for having us shop at Walmart.
4: <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I don't think she has to tell everybody that. That's I mean, nice. everybody I know is is at Walmart. I'm actually in the process uh, of, of trying to move here in New York City. And I was talking to... Uh, you know talking to some folks about it, and they're just like well you know you can go to Walmart and get get so much different stuff that you need for the move and I'm like I know I know you can and as if if I'm too lazy to even and by the way this is like a Walmart commercial I'm doing here I'm just saying it's it's everywhere um and uh, obviously you can go online as well I mean I wonder how some of these uh partnerships you know right now you see what's going on with Amazon acquiring Whole Foods which I know some of you're like eh Whole Foods is that where is that where you go and buy your your organic and sustainable uh, soy matcha lattes? And uh, the answer is, well, one, yes, that is where I go to buy my organic, sustainable soy matcha lattes. Uh, But also, its acquisition by Amazon is likely, I think, to make it a a stronger company because the organic food space has gotten much more crowded. People really like it. I'm actually a little iffier than some other folks on the importance of of organic food i've i've read a fair amount about it as as a celiac you, you get attuned to uh what the offerings are you know in the in the marketplace uh for a whole bunch of different uh in a whole bunch of different ways right where there's gluten but also then you start reading about gmos you start reading about a lot of stuff um but i think that it might make uh it might make everything a little bit just a little bit better for Whole Foods uh, that it's been acquired this way. I mean, the digital part, partnering with major digital entities is I think only going to make some of these companies stronger, but there'll be disruptions. Anyway, Walmart, I wanted to, it's Made in America Week, and Walmart is definitely an American company, my friends. Um, We are going to talk about uh, Betsy DeVos's recent initiative and more in just a few minutes. Stay with me.
2: Buck Back. Hey everybody, Buck's back. It's more of America Now. Throw in your two cents. one 900 buck That's one 900 2825
4: It was just last week that Education Secretary Betsy DeVos held some meetings with different groups that wanted to weigh in on the issue of campus sexual assault and the federal government's role in trying to regulate and prevent campus sexual assault under Title IX, by the way, which prohibits discrimination by uh, sex in uh, higher education. And they're looking at specifically federal guidance to universities and colleges on how to deal with sexual assault. Now, this really isn't an issue for the federal government. This is an issue for states and uh, state and local criminal jurisdictions because that's what a sexual assault is. It is, it is a crime. It is not a, a campus code of conduct violation, although I guess you could say it's, it's that as well. But this is where the left uh, runs into... Incoherence, And they are pushing back very hard on this issue um, because they feel like they have been fighting this battle to create an environment that is honestly uh, hostile towards procedural rights for men accused of sexual misconduct on college campuses. They've been fighting for this for a long time. Under the Obama administration, they got it. And now under the Trump administration, they're just asking some questions about this. So this is, this is where, what it all comes down to. President Obama and his Department of Education uh, decided that the, the um, standard of evidence should not be, quote, clear and convincing, but should go to a preponderance of the evidence standard when judging sexual assault, sexual misconduct on college campuses. Now, these are for campus disciplinary proceedings. This has nothing to do with the criminal code but the Obama administration under Title IX threatened schools to comply with these procedures or else you could be sued under under Title IX. And so you have a situation where colleges are getting pressure from the federal government to set up tribunals for or disciplinary proceedings for men who are accused of sexual uh, assault or sexual misconduct. Now, a few key things here. First of all, sexual assault does not mean rape, Uh, sexual assault in the context it's used in these discussions, can be a whole range of activity. And on some campuses, uh, they will even refer to any unwanted touching and in some cases even lewd and aggressive sexual comments as a form of sexual assault. So there's a lot of blurring of the lines here as to what would legally be considered sexual assault and what is in fact just uh, acting like, well, acting like a jerk. I mean, you know, lewd commentary is, is not an assault. Uh, but the Obama administration, because of the politics behind this and because of the feminist uh, currents in which uh, the, the Democrat Party uh, finds itself right now, uh, they push for this, and it leads to editorials um, like this one that I just saw in the Washington Post uh, a couple of days ago. Where the argument offered up, this is from the president of Brooklyn College in favor of the Obama era campus sexual assault guidelines, which the current education secretary, Betsy DeVos, is not even necessarily overturning. She's just meeting, she just held meetings last week with different groups to hear out their views on this, including some men's rights groups, which are just mocked and derided by the left and, and some on the right as well. But anybody who has spent any time in family court knows anything about how paternity cases go, how child custody cases go, know that there are, in fact, male-specific justice problems. That This is a real thing, and, and it shouldn't be... I mean, it's mocked out of ignorance, because anyone who really knows how the system functions and works knows that there are, in fact, problems. And in, on sexual, uh, sexual assault tribunals on college campuses, uh, there is clearly a, uh, an onus, there, there's clearly an additional burden put on male students who are accused of sexual misconduct as a result of the pressure from the federal government to crack down on what is a hysteria that is not found in the numbers. Yes, there are sexual assaults on campus. Yes, there are rapists on college campuses and universities. They should go to prison. But one in five women is not raped on college campuses. And that's a statistic that people keep repeating. And it's just a lie. It's just not true. And whenever someone has to exaggerate the scale of a problem in order to get their desired remedy, we should start asking some very tough questions about what the real motivations are here. But I mentioned this piece from Michelle Anderson, the president of Brooklyn College, and this was published in the Washington Post. And she writes the following. um, Opponents of the Title IX's application to campus sexual assault argue that campus disciplinary tribunals are kangaroo courts ill-equipped to adjudicate sexual misconduct. But since the early part of the 19th century, educational institutions have used campus disciplinary disciplinary tribunals to adjudicate all kinds of misconduct, from, from plagiarism to rioting. Uh, okay... First of all, plagiarism is a specifically academic infraction. Okay, it's it that, that's just that's not a crime. You don't go to prison. No one's in jail because they stole their organic chemistry uh, homework from somebody else, nor should they be. So to put that in here is just it's just nonsensical. And in terms of criminal activity that the campus punishes, well certainly a student should have the benefit of the criminal justice system to determine whether or not they are guilty of that crime before they are punished for an actual crime, like rioting. But it also ignores, very conveniently, this analysis you see from this president of Brooklyn College. It ignores that rape is a particularly politicized in the current environment. Yes, it is true. There is a campus rape frenzy underway. The Democrats are pushing this. They view it as a means of appealing to a uh, a feminist constituency, and to position themselves as the defenders of women's rights. Uh, this is just, uh, we've had an author on on the show dealing specifically with this. Uh, it is true, unfortunately, that sexual assault is disproportionately uh, a crime that is comparatively to other crimes. Uh, it is, there are false accusations made, uh, it is estimated by credible studies that about one in 10 sexual assault or, uh, or, or rape accusations are unjustified, false claims. 10%'s high, everybody, but that's what, that's what credible reporting on this suggests. Um, and so to ignore that is to condemn innocence to possibly prison sentences as well as uh, the destruction of their reputation and lives. Now, uh, that is just left out of, of the analysis of this from the left, that rape is, is a specifically, uh, is, is a often very difficult to determine uh, the facts of the case. There's off, there are often circumstances that become uh, complex, levels of alcohol involved, uh, other extenuating circumstances. And some of the most uh, prevalent cases—or, I'm or, sorry, some of the most prominent cases of sexual assault that have been raised by the Democrats, whether it's the UVA gang rape that did not happen, the Duke Lacrosse gang rape that did not happen, or Mattress Girl, whose case was not taken seriously by the NYPD, and who, if you learn about that story, despite the fact that she was invited by a, a senator from the state of New York to come to the State of the Union address— uh, That her case, any any credible, honest person that reads the backstory there would say you would not be writing to your accused rapist the things that she was writing to him after the incident in question happened. So they've chosen some very high profile cases that are, uh, well, in some uh, outright hoaxes in UVA and um, and in the case of Duke lacrosse case and also uh, with uh, mattress quote mattress girl. Uh, So it's fair to ask some questions about why they keep bringing these cases up for public consideration that are such weak cases, Um, why they do this, because I think they're trying to create a narrative and they're trying to get the political leeway to do exactly what they've done, which is to tilt the system on campus against male students. Uh, but back to this editorial. So she, she says that they adjudicate misconduct, including plagiarism and rioting. Uh, sexual assault rape is different uh, for all the reasons that I'm laying out. And then she goes on. Finally, opponents of Title IX argue that criminal courts are just better equipped than campuses. So victims should report their rapes to the police instead. But most allegations of campus sexual assault aren't reported to the police. Sexual offenses rank among the least reported of serious crimes, and once reported, they're frequently not prosecuted. Well, if they're not being reported, they should be reported. The answer to a serious crime is not being reported to the police or serious crimes are not being reported to the police enough is not to uh, put it in the hands of college campuses. I mean, this is just nonsense, and it's dangerous, And lives are ruined as a result of this. We've seen this. I've been naming off the top of my head major cases that received national attention that were rape hoaxes. And on college campuses, you read about some of the stories that uh, in recent years, under the Obama administration, have gotten some attention, including at my own college, Amherst College, is a very well-known case um, that the student is is suing the school. Uh, People's lives are ruined. Innocent people should not be Uh, destroyed because there is a political proclivity among Democrats to make it seem like they're particularly tough on sexual assault, that they're the true feminists. Uh, That should not be an excuse to erode due process, to erode the rights of the accused, and that's exactly what it is. And that you have senior administrators of colleges that defend this stuff just goes to show you that they feel like, you know, if it means that a few men on my campus uh, have their lives and reputations ruined, their families shattered from false accusations, maybe it will stop some other rapes from happening. And so I guess that's just the the price we will pay here. That's really the attitude. Ezra Klein of Vox explicitly said as much, by the way. Uh, So this is something that does deserve a real hearing, a fair hearing, and... Uh, The standard that was in place before that was changed by the Obama administration uh, seems much more in line with what the reality should be, which is that there should be clear and convincing evidence uh, before a campus is taking any action here. Because even if you are proven innocent in a court, now what happens if a campus decides that they're going to brand you a rapist? Maybe you don't go to prison, but your your life is ruined just the same, and you may be completely innocent. So, you know, this is an issue. I know it's heated. I know there's a lot of emotions. Rape is a horrible crime. uh, But it really doesn't do anyone any service to allow the innocent to be presumed guilty. And it also, I think, makes the public uh, question more legitimate sexual assault claims that come to light when they realize that there are all of these systemic Uh, decisions, systematic decisions put in place by the government to tilt the scale against the accused, and that is what is happening here. So Betsy DeVos is right to hear out what's going on here, and the left mocking and deriding those who have questions about campus due process when it comes to sexual assault, it just shows that they are interested in politics, not in justice. We'll be back in a few. Stay with me. I know this week for the White House is Made in the USA week, and there will be some other themed weeks out there from the Trump White House. But, you know, next week, not politically speaking, but just in general, is Shark Week. And I find sharks fascinating. I know a lot of us do. Uh, They have had so much great footage in recent years, Uh, and Shark Week is is nothing new. It's been around for quite a while. Um, They've had... All kinds of crazy stuff, though, I'm sure you've seen. And if you haven't, you got to go check it out right when the show ends here. Uh, great whites that breach when they attack or when they're hunting, and engage in predation against seals, and they come flying out of the water you know, off the coast of South Africa. It's incredible. And great white sharks are obviously a particular, uh, particularly fascinating species. Carcharodon carcareus, for those of you who like to go with the Latin. And so uh, to that end, uh, there is a stunt. Uh, It is definitely a stunt that's being set up for next week where the world's greatest uh, swimmer, Michael Phelps, will be in a time trial against a great white shark. Now they're giving Phelps, so it's a race. It's a swimming race between Olympiad, uh, Super Olympiad Michael Phelps and a great white shark. Clearly they're not going to put them in the same pool at the same time or anything, so this is going to be a time trial. Um, I also wonder how they're going to encourage the Great White to go to its top speed. I guess they're going to, like, you know, dangle a, a, a fish that's flopping around at one end and make sure the shark's really hungry. I don't know. You can't really train a shark. Their brains are too small, as I understand it, except for in that movie Deep Blue Sea, where their brains get super uh, acute and uh, super powerful. So, uh, back to... I mean, Back to the swimming race here, you're going to have a, a showdown between a great white and Michael Phelps. Uh, spoiler alert, I think the great white, if it chooses to swim at its top speed, will win because a great white shark goes uh, close to 20 miles an hour in the water. And even our greatest Olympic swimmer, who will have an additional fin to help him cut through the water, probably hits about five or six miles an hour in the water. So that's just a reminder for those of you who are like, if you're ever in trouble, there's a shark that's coming after you. Just swim real fast. No, the shark's going to get you if it wants to. Um, and, you know, I actually, over the 4th of July weekend, I met somebody from Matawan Creek, New Jersey, which some of you might be thinking to yourself right away, oh, Matawan Creek, uh, of course, that's where the inspiration, it's believed, for the movie Jaws came from. Because back in 1916, there were a series of shark attacks there that that killed one and, uh, and injured... Oh, sorry, four people were killed, rather, and another one was injured. So you had a series of fatal shark attacks right off the Jersey Shore. In fact, Matawan Creek is brackish. It is water that... It's a little... Well, it's a, a creek that connects out to the ocean, and if you ever see photos of it, it's pretty narrow, and it looks like... You know, the, the biggest stuff you'd find in there might be some some carp or something. And, in fact, a bull shark, it's believed, got in there and attacked four people. And it caused something of a sensation back in 1916. And while Jaws takes place in Amity, there is no Amity. There's Amityville in Long Island. Uh, and it was shot in part on Martha's Vineyard, by the way, the movie Jaws. I've been to some of the, the set pieces from it. Um but anyway, that's the most famous story of a great white, Jaws, based on Matawan Creek, New Jersey, 1916, or at least the closest thing to what Jaws is all about. Michael Phelps, we swing swimming against a great white; doubt he will win. But Shark Week is next week, so those of you like me get excited about this. Get excited! Thanks as always, team, for joining me—an honor and a privilege. Uh, please do go to bucksexton.com and uh, pick out some Team Buck gear for yourself, for your family, for your friends. We got T-shirts, hats. Freedom Hut t-shirts are flying off the shelves. So uh, do check that out, bucksexson.com slash store. And until tomorrow night, my friends, no matter what comes your way, as always, Shields High.